joining us again for our School of the Word class. I am, uh, I'm particularly grateful for Bill, for all the, the study and preparation he has done to serve us, and it's just been excellent, hasn't it been? So thank you, Burrell. I know a lot goes into this, and, and he's delivering us a lot. Uh, you, can, you can publish it, take it with you for the rest of your life probably, and, and you'll, you'll have more than enough material uh, for this. So it's been uh, very excellent. Well, this, this class is designed to introduce you to what is a theological distinctive for us, uh, reform theology or the doctrines of grace, th- these truths, they, they distinguish us as a church, even if they aren't always explicit in everything that we do. They're, they're, they're underneath and they're in everything that we do. And so if in, in a sermon or if in a counseling session or in a, in a ministry setting, you've encountered something that, that has the taste of grace to it, it's because it's been drawn from a deep well. Even if we don't always take you down into the well and give you a tour and have you look around, that, that's where it's, where it's coming from. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, we need more than just shallow, drawn theology in order to sustain us. I was uh, talking with my wife, Rebecca, this week, and, and she was just remembering having a conversation with her uncle. It was right after her, her cousin uh, Ian was in a, a car accident, which uh, landed him in a coma. He ended up being permanently disabled from that. And she was talking with her uncle, and, 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 and one of her other cousins was just raising questions about God's purposes, and was God really in control when that, when that happened? And she says that he, he said, if God were not sovereign, I don't know what I would do in this moment. And actually, um, it wasn't long after that that he developed brain cancer and passed away. And so there, there are certain convictions, and, and Rebecca and I were talking about this. Uh, Reformed theology doesn't make life easy, but it makes it livable. You need these truths for what you encounter in this life, and they're, they're designed to sustain you. So that's why it's a joy for us to, to give some more attention to them. Uh, but we're going to be going into the deep well this morning, so just be prepared for that. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, several passages and, and tracing out arguments together. But, but this is uh, ultimately not about arguing out a case. It's about drinking deeply from the grace of God and enjoying every drop. And, and the Reformation, that this is what it helped to restore to the church. Uh, Robert Farrar Capon says, The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering, drunk, because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. And that's good news. Now, you know, Bill has helped us realize just from church history that picture isn't 100% accurate because that, that reality of the grace of God was there along the way as well. But what the Reformation did is it, it restored this to God's people, seeing it in the pages of Scripture, awakening them to these realities. And, and it's interesting, uh, Cardinal uh, Robert Bellarmine, who was writing after the time of the Reformation, he said that the central heresy of the Protestants is assurance of salvation, that you can know 
that you are saved, right? You can know that grace actually saves you because the, the Roman Catholic Church taught that if you, if you could be certain about that, then you would become lazy in your religious life. And so they, they viewed uh, assurance with a raised eyebrow. But the, ref, the Reformers recognized that the very thing that makes the gospel good news is that it is a proclamation that God has accepted us, that we are his despite our Sin And at the heart of the Reformation was a proclamation of the finished work of Jesus Christ, a sufficient sacrifice that required no more contribution or merit on our part. And this morning we're going to talk about what exactly it means for Jesus' death to be sufficient. You know, we sing to him, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Well, Jesus is mine because I belong to Jesus. And I belong to Jesus because he has purchased me. He has died with me in mind. And so the doctrine we're going to consider this morning is, is precious to me. It's, it's the L in the tulip acrostic, and, and we'll talk about uh, what that means. It's probably one of the more controversial aspects of the doctrines of grace, but I believe it's, it's one of the most beautiful. And so the concept I'm presenting to you this morning, it's been called definite atonement, or particular redemption, if you want to add in a fancy word for that. It's also been described as efficacious redemption. But, it, but it's just this. Jesus died with his people in mind. And when he died, he saved them. Jesus died with his people in mind. And when he died, he actually saved them. Right? And glad, glad we're celebrating this truth already. Let's see if it's in the Bible. Uh, Hope it is. Uh, no. Uh, we've seen so far, and Bill, Bill has helped us with this, the, the Father's elective purpose to save a particular people. Ephesians 1, uh, verse 4, he read, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And so God chose us. He elected us, and he placed us in Christ. And, and this choice had nothing to do with us. And if we reckon with ourselves honestly, we know it could have nothing to do with us. But, but if God is going to have us as his own, how is he going to do that? Right? What is he going to do to us, sinners and, and rascals that we are? How is he going to resolve the fact that we have opposed him and belittled his glory and turned away from him and, and his justice requires an answer for that? Well, God had planned for that as well. Revelation 13, 8 describes the book of life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And so the cross was not an afterthought. It was not some sort of plan B once Adam and Eve had sinned. So from eternity past, God had placed us in the Lamb, in the Lamb who would then be slain at a specific time and place in history, but whose death has always been in the purpose of God. And here's what I want us to see in this. There is a seamless connection between the Father's plan before the foundation of the world and the work of the Son. One leads to the other. Michael Horton says, In the mind of the Eternal Father, the Lamb without blemish had already been sacrificed when he chose the heirs of redemption and placed them in Christ for eternity. Election signed the death warrant of Jesus Christ. And so God's purpose to save his, his people uh, was at the same time his purpose to send the Son to accomplish 
the salvation for his elect people. And so, so here's the question for this morning. Whom did Jesus die to save? If, as we've seen, the Father has chosen a particular people to save, is Jesus' death for that people? Or did he die to save every single person who has ever lived, regardless of whether or not they are his people? In other words, does the Son share the Father's will in his mission? Is there any conflict between the saving intent of the Father and the saving intent of the Son? That's what's at issue here. And and Jesus actually speaks to this in John chapter 6. In the context here, he has uh, performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000, and then the crowds gather again, uh, not because they're particularly impressed by Jesus and believing in him, but because they like the idea of having free lunch. And maybe if I'm around him more often, he'll do this kind of miracle again. And so Jesus says, you're not here because you believe. You're you're here because your your stomach is grumbling. And, and, And they started grumbling themselves and complaining as a result of that. And so what Jesus does is he then provides an explanation for why they're responding to him the way that they are. I mean, just think about it. Think of the people that rejected Jesus as Messiah. It's, as Bill described last week, it's something that Paul considers in Romans 9 when he, when he talks about all the ethnic Jews that turned away from their very own Messiah who had come to save them. What does that imply about the purposes of God? Well, here in Jesus' own ministry, you know, there, there might be a question. Why are so many people walking away from him in disbelief after they've encountered his miracles if he is who he said he is? Does, does this imply some failure on the part of his purposes and mission? And so what Jesus does in John chapter 6 is he steps in and he he actually says, all right, let's go behind the scenes here. Let's peel back the curtain and figure out what's going on. And so he says in John 6 verse 37, this is in verse 36, he, he talks about their unbelief. And then verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now just let's read the passage. If everyone who's given by the Father to the Son will come to the Son in faith. And we know not everyone comes to the Son in faith. Is everyone given by the Father to the Son? No. Right? There's a particular people that the Father gives to the Son. And because he's given them to the Son, they believe. They come to the Son. But notice what he says there in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. So there's a group of people given by the Father to the Son, and these are the ones that Jesus has come to save. These are the ones that he takes with him to Calvary, and these are the same ones that Jesus will raise up on the last day. So Jesus came with a mission from his father, and he accomplished that mission. And in case there's any doubt, Jesus says, I always do what pleases my father. And this pleased the father. And, and the New Testament roots our confidence in the fact that the, that the father gave his son his special people to save. Romans 8 uh, verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And here's the reality of these doctrines, right? These words, like it or not, are just all over Scripture. And so if you have an issue with the sound of the word predestination, you've got an issue with the Old and New Testament because it's there. And, and so you have to do something with it. Um, what does Paul have in mind here? Well, is he talking about the fact that God knew ahead of time that some people would, of their own free choice, uh, choose Jesus, and because he saw their faith ahead of time, he decided, all right, I'll make you my people. Is that what he means by for no? Well, well notice the object of the verb here. It's not what God foreknew. It's whom he foreknew. This is personal here. It's not God knowing the fact that they would believe It's God knowing them. And as you trace that word throughout the New Testament, it it has to do with a a specific relationship, a a preordained relationship of love that the Father has. And so those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... He also glorified. This has been described as the, the golden chain of redemption. Because each of these words, it's like a link in the chain, and, and they're all linked together. And none can be lost along the way. So the, the very same group who is foreknown from eternity past arrive at the destination, right? They, they are glorified. Now, again, we know from the rest of the New Testament, not everyone arrives at that destination, and so not everybody must have been foreknown and, and predestined. This, this is about God's uh, particular people. But here's the question. Where does the atonement fit in the golden chain of redemption? Is it one of the links on the chain? Or does it belong to some other chain somewhere else? Well, look at what he says in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And here's how he reasons. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You see what's happening here? Because God has given his son for us, we can know, we can have the confidence that with him we will receive all things. There will be no charge brought against us because we are his elect, which for Paul is just another way of saying there will be no charge brought against us because Jesus has died for us. And John Piper comments on this saying, for these people, Paul says, the death of Christ is the unshakable, absolutely certain guarantee that they will receive all things with him. This is the wonderful logic of Romans 8.32. But what becomes of this logic if God gave his son in this way for thousands who do not receive all things, but in fact perish? The logic is destroyed. It becomes if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all people in the world, then since many of them are lost, it is not true that they will most certainly receive all things with him. That is not the point of the verse. It says, because of God's giving the Son for his people, those people, foreknown and predestined from the foundation of the world, will receive everything God has 
to give. Therefore, the design of God in giving the Son is not only a general offer to the whole world, but a rock-solid securing of infinite riches for his people. And this is the, the glorious beauty of this truth. The, the atonement is, is not generic. Jesus didn't die for nameless possibilities. He died with his people in mind. And, and running in the background of the New Testament, and in Paul's letters in particular, is this concept of union with Christ. And here's how Paul describes union with Christ when it comes to the death of Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, because I've been crucified with him. I was there. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is deeply personal for Paul. But notice what he's saying there. When when Christ died, because we are united with him, we were there. We were there in him. I like to say the most important fact about me is that my wrists were pinned to Calvary's tree on the arms of another man. When he died, I died with him, and I was raised with him. But what that means is that there's a real exchange that takes place here because I'm united with Christ. Jesus stood in the place of a particular people. And we sing, in my place, condemned He stood, and 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this, For our sake, he made him to be sin. All right, just right there. For whose sake? Our, meaning every single person, uh, Amalekites and pagans and Egyptians, regardless of whether they believe in Christ. There's something personal. There's something effective about this. For our sake, for the sake of his people, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that, In him, we might become the righteousness of God. You see the relationship here, right? The same people that Jesus stood in the place and became sin on their behalf are the people who then become the righteousness of God, who are justified. He takes our condemnation and he receives the punishment for the guilt that that we deserve and we take his place of righteousness, receiving that credited to our account and there have the favor and commendation from God because we have traded places. We're clothed in his righteousness. And and here's how J.I. Packer uh, describes this. And this is a wordy quote, but this is just really helpful. He says, Moreover, any who take this position must redefine substitution in imprecise terms. He's talking about the position that Jesus died uh, intending to save every single person uh, who's ever lived. He says they must redefine substitution in imprecise terms if indeed they do not drop the term altogether. Just a historical note, people who believed in substitutionary atonement are people who believe in this doctrine. Historically speaking, those who who believe that Jesus died for every person in the world um, did not believe in substitutionary atonement. Historically, they believe Jesus' death represented the love of God. It showed us how much God loves us, and therefore we should uh, receive his forgiveness. But they didn't believe that Jesus died um, in our place taking our punishment. Um, And that's why they, they tend to have dropped that concept 
altogether. And he says, for they are committing themselves to deny that Christ's vicarious sacrifice ensures anyone's salvation. Also, they have to give up Toplady's position, payment God cannot twice demand, first from my bleeding surety's hand and then again from mine. That's from the, the hymn, uh, Why This Fear and Unbelief. For it is of the essence of their view that some whose sins Christ bore with saving intent will ultimately pay the penalty for those same sins in their own persons. So it seems that if we are going to affirm penal substitution for all without exception, we must either infer universal salvation, everybody's going to be saved in the end, or else, to evade this inference, deny the saving efficacy of the substitution for anyone. And if we're going to affirm uh, penal substitution as an effective saving act of God, we must either infer universal salvation or else, to evade this inference, restrict the scope of the substitution, making it a substitution for some, not all, because those in whose place Jesus stood on Calvary are saved in the end. That's what he's saying here. Uh, John Owen wrote a, a classic defense um, of definite atonement, and it was titled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And it, it's just uh, remarkably rigorous as, as a work. It, it's kind of like he takes certain ideas and he places them in a maze, and he traces every alternative system out to its logical dead end. He shows, you, you hit a wall here. Well, what if you say this? Well, you hit a wall here. And he says, the only route that you're, you're left with is, is particular uh, redemption. But he, but he makes this observation. He says, if Jesus died to pay the penalty for the sin of every single person, why will anyone end up paying the penalty of his sin in hell? What is there left to pay? He says, if Jesus died for the sins of every person, why then are not all freed from the punishment of all their sins? You will say, because of their unbelief, they will not believe. All right, listen to this. But this unbelief, is it a sin or not? Right, he comes to the fork in the load and says, okay, all right, so you say unbelief renders the atonement ineffective even though Jesus died for them. Is unbelief a sin? Yes or no, all right? Uh, well, let's say you say it's not a sin. Well, why should they be punished for it? What if you say it is a sin? Uh, then Christ underwent the punishment, do it, or he did not. If so, then why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died? If he did not, then he did not die for all their sins. Let them choose which part they will. Right? The, the doctrines of grace are a, a beautifully logical system. Uh, Reformed theology is, is systematic theology. And sometimes uh, people will say something like, you know, the problem uh, with, with Calvinism is it's, it's so logical, as if that's like supposed to be a bad thing. You know? uh, we, we, we don't decry logic. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones described faithful preaching as logic on fire. Uh, because everything in the Bible is true, necessarily everything in the Bible is logically consistent. Right? That's just another way of saying we don't believe there are contradictions in the Bible. And so we, we want to proclaim the reasoning that's there. But of course, we also want to see this not just by logical implication, but uh, on the pages of Scripture. So does the Bible indicate who are the ones that Jesus gave his life to redeem. Uh, well, Jesus said in John 10, 11, that he's the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. 
Paul says in Ephesians 5 that Jesus is the groom who gave himself up for his bride. John 15 says Jesus laid down his life for his friends. Titus 2.14 says Jesus died to purify for himself a people that are his very own. And Revelation 5 verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so it was universal in the sense that it cut across every social and ethnic distinction, every class of people. There, there is, as we've been studying on Sunday mornings, there's a world of diversity that's represented among the people of God, and that will be there in heaven. So by the way, if you don't like people who are different than you, you might not like heaven <laughs> because there's a lot of different people that you will be worshiping God together with. But, but notice this, verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Let's do a little grammar together. Right? Those words, Pastor Peter will tell you, they're, they're pronouns. And pronouns have what's called an antecedent, right? They have a word they're standing in the place of that they're referring to. All right, look at the text. Who's they and them? It's the people Jesus ransomed. The same people that Jesus ransomed are the people that Jesus makes into a kingdom of priests and who will reign on the earth, right? His, his ransoming of them guarantees this. Uh, that's the, the, the point in this text here. All right, well, what do we do with uh, passages like John 3.16 that describe the whole world represented in the salvation? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, let me just give you the, the proper inflections when you read this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believed in him. Like, you got you to say it like that if you're going to have the full, full effect. Well, what's that, what's that saying? It's, it seems to, to mean that Jesus was given to save people universally, right? That that's why he, he died. But uh, it, it's important to read this, this text, like every other, in, in its context. Uh, God does love the world. He loves every person as a creation made in his image. But in the Gospel of John in particular, the, the word world, um, it, it doesn't just mean a, a big place with a bunch of people. It means a big place with a bunch of bad people, right? The, the system of the world is represented as being in opposition to God. And so it's, it's counterintuitive that God would love such a people. And so the, the emphasis isn't so much on the scope of God's love, but its nature. It, it's directed toward those who are undeserving. And God so loved the world. And, and the word so in the, in the passage doesn't mean so much, although God does love the world so much. Uh, but it's, it's the word for so as in thus or in this way. This is how God loved the world. Here's how the saving love of God is expressed. Here's the intent. He loved the undeserving by giving his son. And, and for whom did he give him? Whoever believes. All right, does that mean that's an undetermined number? Just anyone? Uh, 
well, anyone who believes is a part of that number, but, but whosoever believes is just a way of translating uh, more literally in the, in, the, in the text, all the believing ones. All the ones who are believing. Every believing person are those that God is sending Jesus to save. And so God expressed his love for the unlovable by sending his son to save everyone who would believe. There's no contradiction between that that verse and, and definite atonement. What about First uh, Timothy 2, uh, verse 6? Uh, it's starting, starting in verse 5, he says, For there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Right? Paul says Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. How are we to understand this? Well, we'll discuss this verse in its, in its context, and we're going to look at some other problem passages together. We, uh, we didn't want to focus too much on that along the way because we just wanted to receive the positive presentation of these truths. And so we're going to, we're going to take a week toward the end to, to look at all of your, well, what if, what about uh, verses and, and questions. But just to, to look at this uh, one together, we'll, we'll see when we discuss this that the word all in the Bible is often referring to all groups of people regardless of their ethnic and social distinctions, right? That was in uh, Revelation uh, 5, which is why in verse 7, Paul says that for this, he was appointed an apostle to the Gentiles. Well, why are you an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul? Well, because Jesus died for Gentiles. He died for every race and class and ethnicity. Uh, but it's, so it's not all without exception, but all without distinction. But in order to understand this text as teaching universal atonement, you have to read other concepts into it. Is Jesus really the mediator for every single person? Is he standing before the Father as an advocate on behalf of people who are already in hell? Has he actually ransomed and purchased every single person, or or has he potentially done so? See, people who read this as as, as implying universal entonement, they have to read that word potential, that concept of potentiality, into the text. Otherwise, you'd end up with universalism. And so you either have to adjust your definition of ransom and mediator— or you have to allow the context to interpret what Paul means by all. And again, we'll look at that in more detail in, in the coming weeks. Uh, but here's the, the main point about the atonement in the New Testament. It is really effective. It accomplishes its purpose. And, th- and this is good news. And, and this is presented uh, very strongly in, in the book of Hebrews in particular. The the book of Hebrews was written to people who were tempted to go back to their old ways of Judaism because they had begun to encounter persecution and the struggle of being among this new, seemingly new, at least to the the persecutors, uh, Christian faith. And uh, they were wondering, well, it wasn't so bad when we were just following God's law and and, and participating in, in the rituals of Judaism. What if we just went back to that. And, uh, and, and the author of Hebrews is saying that that is a dead end. 
You don't want to go back because it's only in Jesus uh, that we have salvation. If you lose him, you lose every hope of being right with God. And, and, and that, and along the way, in arguing that case, he describes what makes Jesus' atonement unique. And it's that it actually saves, right? Unlike the sacrifices of the old covenant, it actually takes away sin. It finally and, and fully satisfies the penalty of sin. And so his argument in Hebrews is that in Jesus, we have a sufficient sacrifice and we have a perfect priesthood. And this argument simply doesn't make sense without an understanding of definite atonement, right? Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus makes propitiation for a particular people. Verse 10 For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, right? Jesus was sent to suffer in order to bring sons to glory. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why did Jesus become incarnate? Was it, was it merely for Every person in the human race, is that why he became human? Well, he became genuinely human and shared in the same humanity as every person who's ever lived. But Hebrews is saying he shared in flesh and blood because, specifically, that's what the children share in. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And, and the way that Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament understands that is everybody who, by faith, is a son of Abraham. Therefore, he had, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. All right, that, that word Propitiation it has to do with the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. The, 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 the work of the cross was a work of propitiation. It was a pouring out of God's wrathful opposition toward those Jesus represented in the cross. But here's the question. You know, if God's wrath is satisfied, there's no more wrath to face. And so did, did Jesus satisfy God's wrath for those who will face his wrath in hell? Now, that just has to be read into the passage. It doesn't come from it. Uh, but here, the author of Hebrews is saying there is a group of people that Jesus represented in his incarnation and death, and for them he satisfied God's wrath. He saves to the uttermost. He redeems and intercedes for a particular people. In, in contrasting with the old covenant priest who had to need, they needed to be constantly replaced because they would die and somebody else would have to step in as priest, uh, he says in chapter 7, verse 25, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession to him. And here he's describing Jesus' priestly role. He saves all the way. He saves to the uttermost. And connected to that, uh, inseparable from his work on the cross, is his work as high priest. He represents as priest those for whom he gave the offering on the cross. And the old covenant high priest didn't intercede for the Amalekites. He didn't intercede for a generic, undefined group of people. He interceded for those who were represented by the offering, those who who drew near to God. And here, the author of Hebrews talks about those who draw near to God through him, or those are the ones he's making intercession for. In the same way, Jesus says that his priestly intercession is limited to those that the Father has given him. In John 17, verse 9, I am praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then he says in verse 19, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What does he mean by I consecrate myself? What's he about to do? He's about to die. He's talking about the consecration as an offering before God. And it's for their sake. It's for the sake of the people that the Father has given him, for whom he is interceding, and not just the world generally. Uh, that's what he's saying there. He intercedes and dies for the people the Father has given him, and so he's able to save them to the uttermost. He accomplishes a perfect atonement for a particular people. Hebrews 9, verse 12, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It says in verse 28, So Christ, having been offered once, To bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus will return not to deal with sin because his eternal redemption has already dealt with sin entirely, but to receive and glorify those for whom he died. In other words, those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is what Jesus secured for everyone whose sin he atoned for. And he says in chapter 10, verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, right? The, the old offerings could not take away sin, even though symbolically they did. Even though you sent the goat into the wilderness, removing the sin from the people, their sins were not really removed by those offerings. But unlike those, Jesus' death actually does that. It takes away their sin, Right? And, and he's done that in, in a single offering. He sat down at the right hand of God. He's waiting for the time when his enemies should be made his footstool. So there's just two groups. There's those whom he's taken away sin, and there are his enemies. And he's perfected his people for all time. And who are they? Well, the objects of Christ's atoning work are those who are being sanctified by one offering, by his one sacrifice, he's perfected, which in Hebrews it has to do with the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of the conscience, the setting apart for salvation, those 
who are being sanctified. It's the members of the new covenant who are the objects of Christ's redemptive work and the recipients of his benefits. And Christ has perfected them for all time. His work on the cross is perfect. It's, it's effective. It accomplishes his purposes. Jesus does not fail to save those for whom he died. And so to suggest that his atoning work was designed to save every individual that has ever lived is to diminish the power that the author of Hebrews attributes to it. It it actually saves. It doesn't just make people savable. It forgives sins. It doesn't just make sin potentially forgivable as long as you will eventually accept it of your own free will. And so John Murray said, Did Christ come to make the salvation of all men possible? to remove obstacles that stood in the way of salvation and merely to make provision for salvation? Or did he come to save his people? Did he come to make men redeemable? Or did he come effectually and infallibly to redeem? The doctrine of the atonement must be radically revised if, as atonement, it applies to those who finally perish as well as to those who are heirs of eternal life. In that event, we should have to dilute the grand categories in terms of which the Scripture defines the atonement and deprive them of their most precious import and glory. I hope that's clear from the the passages that we've uh, read together. You know, sometimes this concept is described as limited atonement. And, uh, you know, we, I guess we can blame ourselves for that since it, along the way it got put in that TULIP acronym. Um, but people will sometimes respond to that by saying, you, you know, you're, you're limiting the death of Christ. We believe in, in a death that applies to every person. It's unlimited. And you guys limit the, the atonement of Christ. Well, here's what Charles Spurgeon says. We're often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made satisfaction for all men, or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that, on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. The Arminians, right, those who believe in universal atonement, say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They say no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died so that any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. We say then, we will just go back to the old question. Christ did not die so as beyond a doubt to secure the salvation of anybody, did he? You must say no. You are obliged to say so, for you believe that even after a man has been pardoned, he may yet fall from grace and perish. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why, you. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. Um, I think... This, this illustration comes from Spurgeon. It may, may have come from somebody else. But uh, you, could, you could think of the two ways of understanding the atonement. One as, as a bridge that's really wide. You know, think of like the, the causeway across Lake Pontchartrain, right? What if you had a really wide bridge that went half of the way? You know, would you be really impressed by that bridge? 
<laughs> is that an effective bridge? Uh, but what if you had a more narrow bridge that actually went all the way to the other side? And the point is that saying that Jesus died for everyone but didn't actually save and, and ensure that anybody he died for would be saved, it's like that big wide bridge that only goes halfway. But Jesus dying for his elect people is more narrow in its scope. But it means he's, he's bringing them all the way across. When he says it is finished, he really means it is finished. Those for whom he died will never face condemnation for their sins. They are secure in him for all eternity. All right, let me just raise um, two quick issues in, in closing. Uh, you guys can look at that uh, faith is a purchased benefit. Uh, we're going to talk next week about how faith is a, is a gift from God as he awakens people to life. Uh, and every gift from God is one that's purchased in Jesus' death. And so if Jesus' death purchased for the people he died for, faith and repentance and the new birth, that gives you a, an idea of the, those for whom he died. And you can look at those quotes from John Owen and John Piper. But let me ask this. Um, sometimes people will wonder, all right, if, if, given this, should we tell people Jesus died for you? And what, do you, what do you do with that? It's a very common way of describing the offer of the gospel. Jesus died for you. Um, well, one, it's interesting to, to, to recognize, just recognize that we, we don't see in the New Testament uh, an example anywhere of, you know, in, in the preaching of the apostles, in the book of Acts, or in any of the letters, that the way they initiate an offer of the gospel is by telling people Jesus died for you. Um, they, they announce that God has sent his son into the world to die on behalf of sinners and commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe. And so that's just one observation to make. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think we should be allergic to that phrase or try to avoid it because uh, it's true that we can look at any person and say, Jesus died for you in this sense. Jesus died and accomplished forgiveness so that if you trust in him, you can be saved. And so as we offer the gospel to every person, and, 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 and please understand this as we, as we uh, discuss these, these truths, God's work of ensuring salvation is not in conflict. It's perfectly compatible with the, the responsibility he's given to us to be agents proclaiming that salvation to anybody who's going to sit in front of us long enough to do so. Right? And, and, and so we, we proclaim the hope of what God has done in Christ. And so Jesus has died for them in the sense that anyone who trusts in Jesus may be saved. He has died. He is risen. There is hope of forgiveness in his name for all who trust in him. So I don't think we need to, to worry about that phrase and think that it's in conflict with this. But here's the main point of the, of the, the message today. It's not, it's not so much to argue against a position. It's to strengthen and increase our assurance in the saving power of Christ. He accomplished his work for his people. There, there, there is no such thing as generic redemption or a wishful atonement. He suffered in our place. He suffered with us in mind. And in doing so, he saved us. He's gone all the way across the distance, leaving nothing left for us to pay, nothing left for us to contribute. And so we can have blessed assurance knowing that he is ours. Amen. All right, well, you guys, we'll, we'll meet again next Sunday. Thank you so much for being here.